0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. It was
1: interesting, you know, just with what we're going through in, uh, I I think many of us in this church have felt an acute sense of trauma or of attack with what has taken place with the Josh Harris uh, debacle, trying to come up with an easy way of describing what it is, a debacle, where he has given up his faith, very strong influencer in Christianity that many of us have loved, admired. And so that's hard. But what's interesting is the amount of reminiscing I have done as of late uh, and how much it has sparked my deep appreciation for my wife, my deep appreciation for my family. Isn't that a funny effect? I, I was calling it in my Daily Thunder this morning, it's called the 9-1, 9-11 effect, where the two towers fall and suddenly everyone's making phone calls around the country and saying, I'm so sorry, I did this, I just want you to know I love you. It's interesting, when you go through a trauma of any kind, it can either sour you or make you stronger. And so I've been doing a lot of reminiscing. I actually opened up one of my old uh, albums, if any of you, any of you know that less than I actually have music albums. Uh, it's sort of embarrassing to even think about. But uh, we do, and I was listening to one of our old love songs that used to be it was a song. It was the first song CD ever to be put in the back of a book. And uh, so technically, I had 100,000 or more of that one single album sold in our book. So that, that makes me sort of like a musician, doesn't it? I mean, how many people have sold 100,000 of an album, right? And so I had a single, and uh, it's weird listening to it because it's like old school style, and it's a little awkward and uncomfortable. It's like seeing yourself in the 70s in bell bottoms or something, and it's just like, okay. Uh, but, but the beauty of it was just profound, the purity of it. It's like, yeah, I don't want to lose that, in the midst of all this, I call it revisionist history, history, what's taking place right now. It's like everyone's recasting what has taken place over the past years. It's like, actually, that isn't what happened. No, not even close. Were you even there? Who are you? Anyways, it's like, who are these people that are talking? And it's like, okay, I'll tell you what it was like. We saw God move in such a beautiful, pure, profound way to stir in people's hearts a givenness to Jesus Christ. Not to a formula. To say, Jesus, you take this body and you do with it what you desire to do. There's something precious that God has done. And even when we go through winds and rains, let's not allow the preciousness of the body of Christ to be taken from us. And even if ones amongst us would forsake, that we don't let God, let let the things that God has established be robbed. And so I just want to freshly just remember that, that God has done great things in our midst. He's done great things in our lives and let's hold to those things and cherish them afresh. Proven. The man should be tested before entrusted. This is a, a concept in the kingdom of heaven. The way God has established his kingdom is very much on purpose and the way he establishes any environment, whether it be the readiness of an individual, the readiness of a of an individual to be married, the readiness of a couple to uh, progress and have a family, the readiness of an individual man to take leadership in the church. Whatever these things are, there's, there's a readiness or a proving that must take place before that step should occur. And one of the great miscarriages of the kingdom pattern is when you elevate someone quicker than they are ready to handle the weight that is about to come upon them. It's interesting, but I think from the outside looking in, it's hard to sometimes know how severe the weights of ministry leadership are. And if you truly love someone, you should never place those weights upon them uh, without knowing that they can carry them. And so as a result, this becomes a very significant thing in every dimension of growth and development in life. So as a father, I have children, and those children are at varying ages of maturity and readiness. And so as a result, I entrust different children with different levels of responsibility. And it wouldn't make sense for me to take my youngest child and entrust them with what I'm entrusting my oldest child with, nor would it be appropriate for me to... Uh, take only what my youngest child can handle and entrust and, and my oldest child with only that much because, hey, we're all in this together. You see, we're at different levels of readiness. We're at different levels of provenness in our life. And God knows what we're ready to handle. And he doesn't give us an assignment that is beyond where we're at uh, today. And that's an encouraging point that we can all hold to. But there is a protection in this too. And as we grow as a body, it is important to recognize that as we honor the kingdom pattern for how we elevate people in authority and in, uh, in voice is strategic. And it is something that the Spirit of God holds uh, to, and he, he brings us to the Word of God to show us how to do it. So over the past weeks, this is actually... Did I say it over here? No, it doesn't say it here. It's supposed to say part three of four. So we're going through four specific messages that are attempting to lay a foundation of understanding for us as a church of a transition we're going through. And it's an ex- I'm going to call it an exciting transition, just to make sure that we define this transition in a positive way. And uh, this is part three of it. And so a, a quick review. Part one was called Removing the Tent Stakes. And it was, in a sense, a study of trees. Uh, in Isaiah 61 we see that the work of the Messiah, which is prophesied of 750 years before Christ comes in Isaiah, and in 61, it's, it's actually the very text that Jesus opens to and reads before his people, before the people of, uh, of Nazareth, and then declares, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of this that was written 750 years before. Technically, I'm the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. It's a big moment, but in that description of what the Messiah will do, one of the things that it declares is that he will make us trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. And so he intends to make us trees that are a statement in a culture. The word was a terebinth. Teremut, were these massive trees. Winds and rains could beat against them and nothing could tear them down. But they were known as Ujijian amongst the Jews, which is a statement of they have no beginning, no ending. They're a statement of the Almighty in the midst of a culture. And that's what we are called to be. We are called to grow strong. But to grow strong, a tree starts as a sapling. It starts very young and delicate. And that was what we were describing as you put in tent stakes. You put that little tree wrap around it. And why? Why would you do that? Uh, It's to actually give it a season of gaining foundation and rooting. And once a tree is stable enough, it's actually a disservice to that tree to not remove the tent stakes. You actually remove tent stakes because you love the tree. Because you care about the tree, not because you're trying to get back at the tree and say, yeah, I've had enough of you, so you remove 10 stakes, it's actually a statement of love to a tree. And it's an interesting thought to think that you could actually do harm to a tree by keeping it staked, as opposed to recognizing that you can love a tree by unstaking it and letting it feel the wind against it. You see, when you're staked, the wind doesn't, isn't felt the same as when the stakes are removed. Now it tests the root system. So if the root system is there, then as a result, the winds can gust. And that tree will hold on. Its roots, its root system is solid and strong. Part two, which was last week, was called The Wonder of Change, and we were describing the fact that there is bad change and there's good change. But the Spirit of God is in the business of change. And what's interesting about that is God doesn't change, but the Spirit of God is in the business of change. That's a funny statement. But the business that the Holy Spirit is in is not changing the word of God, not changing his nature. No, those are set. Those are always the same. But he changes us to be like him. You see, we are the ones that need to be changed. We're individual Christians, and we're also the church of Jesus Christ. And in both senses, we need to be changed. There's things that must change, and there's things that will change. And so we need to know how to embrace change. You know, a simple word for it in scripture is sanctification, which is a constant refinement, a constant changing. And it's good. It's actually healthy for us. But many of us are antagonistic against things like change. You know, it's funny. In our natural man state, we're against everything in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I could start whipping out words like tribulation, difficulty, trials, and you'd be like, oh, 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 stop, stop, stop. Every single one of those is a positive, the way God would describe it. Every single one. Isn't that interesting? Change is one of them. In other words, there is bad change. And I, don't, I agree with you to repel it and to say, no, I'm going to stand right here. I'm not changing my mind on Jesus. I'm not changing my mind on his word. I'm not changing my faith in him. You see, that's bad change to change like that. However, in the midst of standing strong and saying, I'm unchanging in my faith in Christ. And then God says, good, now I can change you in the most positive sense, to be more like him. It's a constant removal of us and a deepening of who he is, his nature in and through us. So less of us, more of him. It's a changing process. You look at every child and then you know, the grandma you know, is in another state and she comes to visit her, the kids come to visit her and what does she always say? Oh, you've grown up so much. Well, what is that? That's a change. It's not a bad change. It's a good change, even though some of us as parents wonder sometime if it's really a good change or not. It's like, boy, you want to keep them all little, but at the same time, if you love them, you want them to grow up. All right, the exciting transition. Remember, I, that's what I'm calling what we're going through. It's the an exciting transition. I, I don't know if you're, you guys are as excited about it as, uh, as I am right now in describing it, but it is, it's a good, good thing that's happening. This is what uh, Alex Muckleroy read before we started. And I'm going to read it again, but I want you to recognize in this process of understanding proven and the fact that there is a point of readiness in the body of Christ for leadership is very clearly given to us. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, which is reverence, respect. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double tongued, not given too much wine, too, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So that list for many of us is not the most exciting portion or passages of scripture. And yet it's extremely significant in what it means. In other words, what we have is a pattern... That has been passed to us. The, the apostles in the beginning were anointed, given the Holy Spirit for a very specific task. And that was to build a church. To establish a pattern. And we have received it. It was written down in the scriptures. And now we can actually apprehend and understand how the church is meant to be built. It hasn't changed. It's still the pattern. Cultures have changed around it. But the truth is still there. It's transcended all these generations. And so we're not the ones that reinvent a new pattern. That doesn't change. Pattern stays the same. However, every culture changes and how we appropriate it. Every body of Christ. Look at this. We're a different body than way back then. Like you go to the church at Corinth and it's like different people. Wait a minute. How are we supposed to do this? It's like different people in every generation. Yeah, we're a whole bunch of different people. And yet same truth. Same truth. And we need to adapt to the scripture, not try and get the scripture to fit around us and our culture. Because our culture differs. I mean, every, every culture comes along and has a new idea of how it should be done different. Every culture sort of looks you know, cross-eyed at the scriptures or jaundiced-eyed and goes, yeah, that's ridiculous. Every single culture bar none. In other words, every troop of Christians in every generation has to rise up and freshly believe the word of God. We have to freshly say, this is God's word, and I, for one, am willing to be changed by it. And if you put me in a leadership position, I want to see this church grow by it, mature in this fashion. And it takes wisdom, because it isn't always obvious how you do this. And you look at some of the the words in there, not a striker. You're like, thank you, Lord. What in the world does that mean? In other words, there's all sorts of things that demand study, that demand time, that demand givenness to discern these things and to understand them, and it's not always clear. It's not just always a gold nugget sitting on the surface like, got it, found it. Sometimes you have to dig for it. In fact, almost always you have to dig for it. You have to wait on God. You have to seek him for wisdom. Say, God, I know your truth here is right, and it is unchanging. But how does this apply to this situation here? How do we do that here in Windsor, Colorado in the year 2019? What does it look like? And that's a tension that is good for us. It's a process that we walk through that is wonderful. So what do we know? We don't put people in charge of the church that have not proven faithful in smaller things. In other words, if you're floundering around in your own life, in your own body, in your own discipline of life, well, then I, I sorry, but I'm not going to recommend that you get married. In other words, if you can't even rule your own body, then you shouldn't be trying to run a home. How about we take another season and, and get this right? And then if you have a home, well, how are you running that home? You know, if if it's in disorder, if it's in disrepair and it's fallen to pieces, well, then let's take a little bit longer before we put you in charge of the church. In other words, you prove with first things it's how you raise a child, too. I'm not going to stick my child in charge of something if they're floundering around with smaller things. It's like they can't even keep their room clean, and suddenly I'm going to assign them the task of keeping the entire house clean. It's like, no, 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 no. How about you learn to clean your room every day, and then we'll talk about hiring you to clean our whole house. In other words, you grow them up in graduations. They matriculate through a process of young to older to mature. And the same is true with everything that takes place. We recognize that every single one of us is at a different place of maturity. As the body of Christ, it's important that we learn to assess that and not put too much weight or too much responsibility on someone who's not yet ready to carry it. So, in a topic like we're discussing, we have already gone through this at multiple layers. In other words, we have a leadership team here, and yet there's greater degrees of responsibility that we're now dealing with. In other words, if I and the executive team were going to take a step back from our role that we have here in the church to remove tent stakes so that the current leadership can handle it, do you know that the moment we do that is the moment that a certain windbreaker that has been around this church is suddenly not there. There's a lot that I get hit with that most people just have no idea about. There's a lot of flack that comes my way. I'm just used to it. It's sort of like, yeah, but a tree, I don't have any stakes. I'm getting hit with winds, but to me it's normal. But I might be shielding that wind from someone else. The moment you move that windbreaker out of the way, that wind is hitting someone else. Are those people ready? Are those leaders ready to have that wind hit them? And that's one of the key evaluation points of everything. Of course, I'm going to tell you, yes. Happily, my answer is yes. I believe they are ready to be hit with that wind. So, dokimaso, Cool word. Uh, it means to test, examine, prove, scrutinize, to see whether a thing is genuine or not. Is this real? Poke at it. Is that real? It's Mazo. Is this a real thing or not? As medals to recognize as genuine after examination, to approve, to deem worthy. God does this with his children. You know, I just said that I do this with my children at a certain level. It might not be as grand and as detailed and as granular as God does it, but I have a miniature version of this. In every situation, in all leadership situations that I have put a lot of people in leadership positions, I do this all the time. And I don't always think it through, like come up with some strategy. I remember my uncle, uh, I remember first thinking about this with my uncle. I I really had a high regard for my uncle. He was a very successful businessman up in uh, the state of Washington. And I came up and I was hanging out with him. And he was sort of giving me a few pointers about leadership and things. He said, you know what, when I want to prove a man, I take him out on the golf course. And you'll find out what makes that man tick very quickly. You'll find out because it'll all come out of him. And if he can handle trial, if he can handle stress well, well, you'll find out on the golf course. I was just thinking, I don't even know how to play golf. So I would hate to be tested that way. But every man has his unique way. God has his way. In other words, God says, we need to find out what, is, what this person is made of. And so he will allow us to face wind. He will allow us to face trial. And what it's doing is it's proving something. What's inside? Because when you get certain men out into the golf course, you'll find out, I guess. I've, I've never done it. That's not my testing way. However, in life, if you hang out with people in the church long enough, you'll find out that they all go through trials. And you'll be able to find out what they're made of. And some people melt in trials, and some people actually grow stronger. You know, the military goes through this all the time. There's certain people that on paper look really good for the military. But then the moment a bullet flies, they turn into the ultimate coward and run. There's other guys that don't look as strong on paper. They look sort of weak, thin, frail. Bullet flies, and they suddenly become a machine, And it's like, watch out world, this guy has just turned it up a notch. It's like he grows five feet the moment a bullet flies. What is that? And the military would say, we want that guy. So, for each of us, how do we handle difficulty? How do we handle the challenges? We need to be proven. God wants to do something in our lives, but if we find ourselves on meltdown, when difficulty comes, we're not then fit to progress to carry greater weights. So God does this with his children. Remember Abraham. So Abraham is asked to lay down the life, sacrifice Isaac. It's such an extreme story, it's hard for us to even comprehend, but long and short I can tell you what this story is. It's approving. God is testing Abraham. God is going to give us assignments. And we can look around ourselves and say, God, why am I getting this and no one else is getting this? I don't know if you've ever had that thought go through your head. But the key for us in each of our assignments is to say, yes, Lord. That's the proper response. I don't know if you've ever dealt with your kids in such a way where it's like there's that one response that is like, that's not the response I'm looking for. Self-pity, that that doesn't go over well here, right? And so whenever you see that response, that's the wrong response. And I think God has the same type of thing with us. It's like the moment we get an assignment, we're like, God, why me? Instead of, thank you, Lord, for such an opportunity, you see a bullet whizzes, and you immediately go into coward mode instead of, grow five feet and say, bring it on. You see, God is testing, and he allows us to be proven so that he can assign us greater responsibility. He wants to do more in us. He wants to work in a more powerful way through us, but... We can't shrink back from the challenge. Don't measure yourself with those around you and say, why did they not have to go through this? I guarantee you, if each of us got up here and we were to lay out our accusation against God. Like, God, why did I have to go through this? We'd all have a really good argument for self-pity. Every single one of us. And yet every single one of us would be wrong if we tried to go that route. I've had very unique challenges in my life, and if we were to try and compare and swap stories, I I would try and make mine larger to make yours look smaller. So that why? What, What would I be trying to accomplish? My life's been harder than yours? You see, God is proving me. He is readying me for a task. Will I accept it? Will I accept the wind when it blows against me? What's it doing? It's strengthening my root system. Well, I accept the fact that there's a drought out there. What's it doing? It's causing my roots to sink deeper and go after deeper water. Is this bad? Is this harmful to me? No, it's really good for me. And even when that wind could be, its origin point is the devil itself and the devil's trying to beat against me. If I would receive everything that takes place in my life with an understanding that God turns all things, even that the enemy means for evil, into greater good, even that strengthens me. So therefore, there is no downside. Whenever I go through anything, it's all working to prove something, to strengthen something in me. So for each one of us, you might not be in the position of taking the leadership of a church, but you're at whatever gradient or level of reading that you are at today. The question is, are you going to be proven when God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, up to a mountain that I will show you? Would you take them? Would you take that one piece of your life right now? And God says, hey, right here, right, this one issue right here. And you're like, not that issue. Like, yeah, that, that one issue, that Isaac issue in your life, that precious thing. Would you take that to a mountain? I'll show you and lay it down. Oh, uh, God, wait a minute here. How are you responding to that? We don't know all the emotion that Abraham went through. It's really weird how simple the Bible is, how clear it is. It doesn't say anything. It just says, so he took them. So it's like got up the next morning and took him. It's like, God, give me some human side of this. Because I can't imagine if I was asked to take Hudson up to a mountain that God would show me and sacrifice him. I'm sure Hudson's thinking the same thing. He's like, wait a minute here. How did my name get into that story? See, that's such an extreme thing. But the question is, are we in a ready position to say, God, prove me? I, I remember... Uh, Finally catching the vision for studying. I, I didn't like school when I was in high school. Complained constantly. And then when I got into college, I recognized something. And that is that most people were playing. And if I took it seriously, I had a massive advantage. And so I, my, my college days are pretty funny. Because I dressed, I got all these clothes. That, and I had ties. I wore a tie every day. No one else in the entire school wore a tie. I wore a tie. I was going to win. And so, I, I mean, I didn't cram for tests. I was studied, and then the night before, I went to sleep early. Uh, see, I was, I was thinking this through. And here's, here's what happened. The moment I did this, and I, I started approaching my school indifferent, is the moment I got excited for tests. You know that if you feel ready for a test, you're excited for a test? You know why we don't like tests? Because we don't feel ready for tests. If you know the subject, you're like, I know this. Someone's quizzing you, like, I got it all. And they're like, well, you know everything. Give me the test right now. Can someone administer a test to me? Isn't that funny? Why would you want a test? Tests are bad. Or are they? You see, if you're allowing God to prepare you, then when the test comes, it's just time to grow five feet. Bullet whizzing. All right. Let's do this thing. You see, many of us just feel unprepared. We're, we haven't been accepting the small trials, which means when the proving comes, we aren't ready for it. So what do we do? We start with small trials and we start saying, yes, Lord. See, grow five feet in the small trials you're facing right now. Be like that little skinny guy in the battlefront and just say, I don't care if I don't look good on paper. If I don't have my degree from West Point. Makes no difference. I know my God and I know what he wants to do in me. So let the bullets whiz because I'm ready to be proven. And he said... This is Abraham up there. He raises the knife. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, this is how God works. You have an Isaac. Are you willing to allow God to touch it? Are you willing to allow God to prove you? And he asks us to do the same with our leadership. You know, it's interesting, but... God fathers a very specific way, and then he asks us to father or parent the same way. In other words, we're little miniatures of the kingdom of heaven. So the church of Jesus Christ is a miniature. And so as a result, there's a necessity for us to have a proving ground for those within the body to rise up and take greater responsibility. We need to know that we know that we know that they're ready. And when we know that we know that we know that they're ready, well, then what should we do? We should move forward. We shouldn't hesitate. We have a very unusual church, and I think I've said this over the past few weeks. A lot of churches out there are really struggling when they read through 1 Timothy to find one or two, sometimes even that, in the body that match the test. So as a result, I mean, how are we supposed to build a church when we have no one that's ready to even carry this basic leadership? How are we supposed to do this? That's a huge problem in the church today. And so as a result, you need to squint at people and go, okay, you're not quite the, what I was looking for, but if I squint just right and uh, just keep telling myself that everything's fine, that you're not quite deacon material or bishop material, then let's move forward. In our church, we have an opposite problem. We have a super abundance of, of bishop deacon ready material there are so many of you of the men in here that are actually ready to carry greater weights so what do we do i don't know if you can follow the logic of what we're dealing with as a church here but what does that mean that means we need to help remove tent stakes so that these trees can actually grow taller and stronger and so how we navigate forward in this is actually part of what we are seeking wisdom for as a leadership. So what we're going through right now is a first phase of that, but as it progresses, it's like, I want you guys to be ready to carry weight. That's what we're doing this for. It's not just Eric, it's the Holy Spirit. It's what God does in his church. He doesn't just, this is a salt shaker in a certain sense. What is this, what's salt for? Not to stay in a salt shaker, but to be thrown out on the egg. In other words, it has a job to do, and when it is readied, it is meant to be utilized. So, this is how God sets up his church. Key scripture in my life. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. This is a scriptural idea for how you build leadership. Laying hands is a commissioning. In other words, I've been given a grace of leadership, and when I lay hands, I'm imparting that. And I'm giving someone position in the church. Do not do that quickly, is what Paul says to Timothy. Whoa, whoa. No, no. Not before there's proving. You see, when you lay hands on someone who is unready, then what do you bring into the church? Unreadiness, instability, chaos. And guess who gets to share in that? Whoever laid hands on them. So as a result, you become a partaker of another man's sin. So their unreadiness actually impacts you and you get to carry it. It's like a cosign for someone's stupidity. It's like this person's going to run around and do stupid things, and I'm going to say, yeah, and it'll be on me if he does it. So it's a very, very important thing to recognize. Oh, well, do you know that you know? Do you know that they are ready for this before you give them that task? Now, just to be fair, none of us is ever perfectly... Perfected ready for anything that we're called to do. But there is a point of readiness where even though we need to learn a lot still in the role that we're going to get, because you can't skip that, like removing the tent stakes, that tree has never faced wind before. But we believe it's ready to face wind and that when it does face wind, guess what? Its root system is going to have to have a hyperactivity on it going, whoa, 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 this this is unsteadying. Yeah, but that's good for it. In other words, that tree is still not perfectly mature, but it's ready. And so recognizing readiness as opposed to immaturity is very, very significant. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Odd scripture, I I understand. However, what it shows you is that there is a process of trying. You don't just believe everything. You don't just take everything in. When people come into a body... They oftentimes will put their best foot forward. Okay? I mean, that's just what we do as humans. It, it's like that, that uh, blind date type of thing. If you're on a blind date, which I've never been on a blind date, so I guess I'm speaking into territory that maybe I shouldn't. But you're going to put your best foot forward. You're going to want them to see your good side. And so if your right side of your face is your good side, then you're going to turn slightly to the right. Now, what's funny is if you ever got married to that person, they're going to see a lot of your left side. And so why, why do we do this? And yet we have a tendency to do this in the body of Christ when someone comes in. Say you've had a, some problems elsewhere. And you're like, I want to do this afresh. I want to have a, a good start. And so you come in and you're going to be doing your hallelujahs and your amen brothers. And you know, you'll add in whatever you sense that that atmosphere is looking for. But that doesn't necessarily give you a true picture of who they are. A trial well. You see, when that person is tried in front of the body, well, then they'll be proven. There's a process, and that just takes time. You can't rush the proving process. It is very, very significant and important. We represent a generation that elevates people to position of influence based on their schooling, their academic knowledge, their ability to play a guitar, their ability to, to uh, hit a good note when they're singing, their charisma... You know, by the way, you could study those things in Scripture. Nothing is ever mentioned about those being reasons to elevate someone in the church. You could look at that list again. That has nothing to do with why we raise people up in the church. Every branch of anything, like I said with the military, when you see someone who comes out of West Point first in their class, you have an instinctive sense that, yeah, we want that person here. That person has never been in real war. they've never had a bullet whizzing by their head you still have to prove that man doesn't matter what he looks like on paper the same is true with everyone in the church of jesus christ get someone straight out of seminary that's first in their class that does not make them ready to lead the church in fact give me the little short skinny weak guy that will will grow five feet when a bullet starts whizzing any day over the seven foot tall behemoth that will run from the battle I want the stuff that's going to rise up and be stout in the midst of difficulty. And how are you going to be stout in the midst of difficulty unless you're embracing the smaller difficulties in your life right now? Many of us have the notion that if you read about people thrown into concentration camps and these extreme situations, like Corey and Betsy Tenboom has always been one of the things for me, and I'm always thinking, how am I going to handle that? Okay, what would I do? If I was Richard Wormbrandt and I was thrown into prison and I was being tortured, how would I respond? And so we think, well, when I get to that point, well, then I'll rise up and I'll say, I will not deny Christ. I'll always do this noble thing in our brain. And yet, if you're not living in the small moments right now with that same doggedness, with that same determination, what makes you think you're going to skip all that middle ground and go from living a mediocre, paltry life right now to living a glowing, powerful picture of noble... uh, standing for Christ when you're finally tested. We need to start now with the small tests that we're facing. And if we're not embracing them, if we're not rising up as that little skinny guy when the bullets whiz and saying, bring it on. Lord, I want to be tested and proven. I want you to show me that I'm ready for this and prove to whoever needs to see within the body of Christ that this is the time. It is the right time for me to move forward. So, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because there's a lot of falseness out there, guys. There's a lot of fake Christianity. I've been around it for years of my life. The people that have the big, huge smile and the tooth that goes ding, but don't necessarily have the substance of soul. I'm interested in the substance, even if the package doesn't look as polished. I would say I think that's what God says, too. So, remember David so the valley of elah when we were talking about terebinth i mentioned the valley of elah it's actually elah is talking about a tree so it's it's a terebinth too it is it is this massive tree how big it was i don't know but likely somewhere around 20 to 24 feet in circumference massive tree and this would have defined the valley in which david fought goliath and so it's also nearby to a place called bethlehem where david was born David was assigned the sheep because he was the youngest. It's the worst job, and it's always the job that gets handed down to the youngest sibling. And so David gets stuck with it because he's the youngest of eight brothers, and so he is the shepherd in the family. And so the Valley of Elah was the ultimate place for bringing your sheep. The reason is, is it had this enormous tree which could supply shade, so you could watch over your sheep, at the same time have shade, it was a valley, it was a beautiful with, a, with obviously a brook in the valley because he had to go to some place and grab five smooth stones, right? And it had a cave system, an elaborate cave system uh, right up next to it where if there was danger or there was storm or everything, you could actually take your sheep into a cave system. And so I'm going to set something up here because I'm going to say David is a classic picture of ready, the reading of a man for leadership. And so many of us are in a David position right now in our life where we have a job description like taking care of sheep which doesn't feel very honorable. It doesn't feel as grand as we have a a vision for our life Uh, because we could be doing so much more. Have you ever had that thought of like, if someone could really see what I have, then they would give me a higher position. But for whatever reason, you're overlooked and you're caring for sheep. And I'm going to say in the Valley of Elah. Now, I'm taking a speculative, Okay. But there's a reason why I think he may have been doing a lot of his shepherding in the Valley of Elah. And that is because when he ran from uh, Saul for all those years, he hid out in a very specific spot for close to 11 years. And that was a place called the Cave of Adullam, which is right smack in the Valley of Elah. So it's very likely that as a shepherd, he got familiar with the Valley of Elah. And so in the years to come, would you imagine? This is just my thought. Imagine that he killed the lion in the Valley of Elah. This one specific piece of property. And then uh, a bear came and he killed the bear. And imagine him looking and and realizing that was the same spot. That's weird. And then imagine a giant comes out and stands in that exact spot all those years later. Imagine what David was thinking. I know who's winning this one. You see, there's something... God loved it. I mean, Moriah, the very place where Abraham was tested, the very place he raised his knife... This is the cross. That's actually, historically, the same geographical location as Calvary. And so can't you imagine? It's not going to be a foot off this way. It's going to be right there that the ram is provided, and God is going to do his work. So, I mean, I just have these thoughts that go through my head in regards to David. Doesn't it make sense? And so I can't prove it, but it's fascinating. So the reading of the novice. A novice is one who is not yet ready. He's new. He's green. And so one of the things in Timothy that we're going to see is that you should not lay hands on the novice, lest they fall into the very trap of the devil. The devil stumbled. Lucifer fell. Why? Well, many people would say because of pride. The sin of the devil. And so as a result, when you're a novice and you're elevated too quickly, pride will oftentimes ravage your soul. And so as the church, we recognize we don't want to elevate anyone too soon we want to make sure that they're ready for this so what we see is david now david has quite the story and uh, you know you you'll read through certain stories in, in scripture and you really identify with them and you're like wow that sounds like me david lives in a way that is and maybe he struggled emotionally maybe he had different trials but he handles this with such honor and nobility and yet, i don't think many of us have ever thought it through how difficult this would have been if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he falls into the same condemnation as the devil. So we have the shepherd, and again, shepherding is the lowest of low positions. It's I mean, you're, you're just the lowest rung of society. What you don't want when someone says, "So what do you do?" To have to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, "I'm a shepherd." And that's humiliating. That's what David was with, get this, no hope of being anything different. He has an assignment. He's the youngest son. And as far as we know, there is no more sons coming, which means this is his job. This is what he gets. This is just his lot in life. And yet we don't have any clue or any signal in scripture to say that he ever complained about it. In fact, he was an incredible harpist and singer. In fact, legendary. So, meanwhile, instead of just bemoaning the fact, he's obviously working on his skills and singing songs. Seems like a very happy lad. The exploring of the Valley of Elah. Now, here, I'm just going to bring you into my mental thoughts on this. When God is, God is preparing David for something, we would all agree with that, right? However, when he's preparing him, it doesn't feel very romantic. It's not easy. And so, why is he exploring the valley of Elah, which is going to become a very, very significant place in his future? Because he's being readied. But how is he being readied? As a shepherd, the low of low positions. You know that a shepherd risks his life every day? A shepherd is exposed to the winds, the rains, the foul weather, and with no appreciation. You know, the only time a shepherd is noticed and and talked to is when he loses one of his sheep. So if a shepherd blows it, it's like the offensive lineman in football. You never notice him until, tweet, offensive holding penalty, number 72. It's like that's when he's announced the same with the shepherd, David, lost sheep. I mean, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. Not only do you have the lowest rung position, but the only time it ever comes up that you did anything is when you do something wrong. Because if you take care of your sheep, there's no thanks in that. You just, of course, you did your job. They're wild beasts, I and mean, we don't understand that living in Windsor, Colorado. Wild beasts that are constantly prowling, what are they looking for? Food. And so they're coming after those sheep. So not only do you have sheep that you can't lose, but you have wild beasts that you have to fend off. What kind of job description is this? Yeah, it stinks. There's all sorts of good reason for self-pity, guys. In other words, where well, this poor guy is stuck in this job description, away from his family, his family's doing all this fun stuff over there. Samuel the prophet's coming to town. Guess what? They don't even invite him. They leave him out with the sheep. So can you imagine a little disgruntledness in David? Yeah, I could imagine it. So he's living in a cave. Why do you think that's important? Because he needs to be prepared for the years to come. So this young shepherd boy is learning how to live a rather rough and tumble life. But that's because what he is being called to will demand it. What you were being called to will demand every single trial that you face so far. The question is: are you going to resist all of that training or are you going to embrace it? The slights. Yeah, this would be hard. I mean, Samuel is coming, he's going to anoint a king out of, uh, out of Jesse's sons, and David isn't invited. Now we never have any commentary of how David felt about this, how Jesse was what Jesse was thinking. But he is not invited which how would you interpret that as young David you don't think I'm king material obviously dad I mean I can imagine that that's a slight right we never hear any complaining the anointing now that's that's quite the moment for David (laughs) could you imagine you're not invited and then with your tail with his tail between his legs his father needs to say yeah David I need you there anyways okay yeah Samuel wants to see you Then, in front of his brothers, could you imagine when Samuel Samuel the prophet said, are there any others? Could you imagine what the brothers felt? And then Jesse, they're looking at each other going, no way. Not David. Now, there's all sorts of statements throughout Jewish history where people think that David was illegitimately born. Okay, I can't prove that. There is a certain psalm that uh, he was born in iniquity, and as a result, people have concluded that. We don't know. However, there is something that is causing him to be treated different than all the other brothers in this situation. And so could you imagine there was, I'm going to hazard a guess that there was a great tension in the room when David's name was mentioned and when David arrived. The reason I'm going to say that is because he was publicly anointed in front of his brothers, and then where did David go next? Back to the sheep. If you were anointed as king, you know what his brothers and his, sons, his brothers and his dad should have done? Oh hail, King of Israel! Instead, he was sent to the lowest position in all of Israel. Do you see something there that uh, might have been hard for David? Sort of like they're treating Samuel as a cuckoo. He's obviously a little old, a little off. Because there is no way the eighth son of Jesse, the shepherd, would be anointed to be king instead of Saul. Come on. That's ridiculous. David has to walk every bit of this. So whatever trial you're going through, I want you to recognize that great men and women throughout history have gone through trials too, and they were being ready. Right now, David can't see it. He's anointed. What a great moment in life. You'd think his family would be cheering. there'd be just wonderful. I mean, bring out the, the pot roast. Let's, let's get some streamers, maybe some uh, what are you, sparklers. Let's celebrate this. Instead, you get the cold shoulder. So sort of like, don't you think highly of yourself you're still the shepherd in this family. I mean, what what kind of treatment is that? So the return to the sheep. Now, I'm going to add in the climbing the great tree. I'm using my imagination here. If there really is a great tree in the Valley of Elah and he's shepherding there, I picture him writing songs in that tree because he'd have a great view. If he's up in the tree, he can see the wild beasts coming. I'm just using my imagination, right? And yet, imagine him becoming familiar with that tree. Remember, the tree is a symbol of the Almighty, and he's in that tree. He sees a lion come. He hops down. He's like, what, what are you doing taking one of my sheep? You see, David is anointed by God. And though he doesn't have a position of any influence, no one is impressed with David. God is impressed with David. Because God looks at the heart and not at the outward form of a man. The rest of his culture is looking at Eliab, the oldest son, and say, that's a man. They're looking at Saul. You know that it says of Saul that he was head and shoulders above all of Israel? Yeah, we want that guy for our king. David was the little skinny, small soldier that I was telling you about. But when that bullet whizzes, what are you going to see? He's going to grow five feet. And so, as a result, what you see is the formation of something. You're seeing the proving of something. So, we have the lion, the bear. Great stories, right? Bare hands. He's like taking these guys down. You know, if if your mom was giving you wisdom about how to be a shepherd... What would she say? Honey, if one of those beasts gets a hold of one of those sheep, you just let him have it. Even if you have to get a you know good whipping from your father, I'm just going to advise you right now: do not give up your life to spare one of your sheep. And yet David handles it completely different. You see, he's a model shepherd, and he's being prepared to lead a nation. See, right now he just has a few sheep, so do you, maybe. You have just a few sheep. Some of you, it's just your thought life, your emotions, your body, your future, your time, your money. That's all you have is a few sheep. But how you handle those sheep is preparing you to handle more. And if you are faithful with the little that you've been entrusted, you will be strong with more. But if you're unfaithful and you take it in that, what was that one story, a napkin and bury it in the ground. God has given you something. What are you doing with it? Prove it. Prove that you're ready. And so David is proving it. He's showing a behavior that is otherworldly here. He, He goes after a lion with food in its mouth. He goes after a bear with food in its mouth. This is a bad idea, David. No, it's a good idea. He's showing Christ a thousand years before Christ comes. The service unto Saul. What a strange story that Saul is pestered by evil spirits, and so he needs something to calm it. So out of all the people in the kingdom, could you imagine how does he get David? Could you imagine what that would be like for David? David's anointed king, and what does he have to do? He has to be a servant unto the guy who's sitting in his seat. Never shows David complain once. In fact, Saul is throwing spears and javelins at David. Could you imagine how hard that would be? It's like, hey, bud, you're sitting in my seat. David is the rightful king. Instead, he becomes the servant. He is playing a harp to soothe Saul. Come on. Come on, God, when are you going to notice my plight? When are you going to notice my situation? David is being prepared. He is being proven for something. However, he has to walk through this well. The return to the sheep. Do you imagine this? The battle comes. The Philistines come with their mighty host, their, their Goliath, uh, their champion from Gath, and his four brothers. They all show up at the valley of Elah, and they are taunting uh, the, the, the armies of Saul and of Israel. And guess who isn't invited? The greatest warrior in the generation. Because on paper, he doesn't look that impressive. He's a shepherd boy who plays the harp. And, you know, he's, he's the youngest in the family. Someone needs to tend to the sheep. That's David's job. Wasn't he anointed king over Israel? How did we forget all this? David has been given a commission that is a lot higher than his position right now. So have you. You have been given an anointing for something grand in this life. Right now, your position might not match. The question is how you handle handling your position right now. So could you imagine how hard that would be? He's like, Father, I'm ready. Send me to the battle, please. Son, I need someone to take care of the sheep. I'm going to send your seven older brothers and they'll represent our family well. I need you to go back to the sheep. Yes, Father. I don't know what your response is in those situations, but that's the proper one. Yes, Father. And so could you imagine someone comes up to David, he's... He's taking care of his sheep and says, your dad wants you. I think it has something to do with the, the battle. I think he may want you to go. Sure, sure. You're going to take the sheep? Yes. He runs sprints all the way home. Father. He's standing before his father with the smile, the anticipation. I remember uh, back in the day when I was like 11, we had wanted a video cassette recorder. And we had asked my dad every day for Christmas that we would get a video cassette recorder and so then we got all our gifts there was no video cassette recorder and at the very end about 20 minutes after all the gifts we're like moping around and he says oh by the way guys there's a, there's a gift in the, the back of, of my car we look around we run out there and there's this package in there that was shaped just like a video cassette recorder and we come in we're like cheering oh this is great and then we open it and it was a typewriter <laughs> that's this moment in David's life David has been longing to take his position. David knows that he has a role to play. He's anointed for it. But that day seems to always be somewhere out in front. And now he's tasting it. He's going to be sent to the battle. Daddy, I'm ready. Uh, David, I'm sorry if you misunderstood. I, I actually am not sending you off to fight. I'm sending you to get news from the battle. I have some bread and cheese for you to carry. Bread and cheese. I get to deliver bread and cheese. I'm the king of Israel and I'm being asked to deliver bread and cheese to a battle. I'm the greatest warrior in this generation. No one knows it. You ever felt that? Well, maybe not to that extreme. <laughs> that, that's, that's a little hyperbolized probably to what we feel. But where you feel ready for something but no one has released you. It's like you're that arrow in the back of, you know, in the, what do you call that? Uh, the quiver and you're like saying hey come on send me i will hit that mark and yet the archer keeps reaching back and missing each time you keep moving it's like hey grab me you're ready to fly you're ready to do this thing and then there's the moment at the place of the great terebinth i mean that's just such a great moment in history but what did david have to go through it's his final yes father bread and cheese son yes father You never know when that last yes father is to deliver bread and cheese. You don't know when the public stage is going to open. You don't know when God is going to finally open it up for you to take that next step. That's not your business. Your business is the yes father. Your business is to humble yourself and say, God, I will take care of my sheep as if it's the nation of Israel. I will lay down my life for this even though no one will ever see it, appreciate it, or know it. I want to be proven In your eyes. You see, being proven in God's eyes is far more important than being proven in each other's. Even though we really do esteem the opinion of other people around us in this world. Being proven for the task. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a little spindly, skinny soldier. You have no business being in this battle. This man is going to grow five feet in a few moments. He is ready. You see, you might not look good on paper. You might not have the seminary degree and all the alphabet soup after your name. And yet, if you're allowing God to refine you and to prove you in private... You'll be ready for this moment. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. That's quite the resume. Yeah, I used to be the lowest in all of Israel. I'm a shepherd. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not proved them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not proved them. So David took them off. You see, there is something that David had proved, and that is faith in the Lord of Battles. He knows that when he trusts his God, and he does what God is asking him to do, God will back him up. Get rid of all this other stuff. I'm ready to take on this giant. This is one of the craziest stories in all of history, and yet it's true. And it's amazing how it parallels not just Christ and the cross, but it parallels the development of a Christian. God is ready to prepare us. He has a valley of Elah for us. And when you get there, you'll recognize, it's like all the little symbols. If it's a movie, it would like show you the cave. It would show you the tree. It would show you the spot on the ground where there's still maybe a little blood from the the bear that you killed. It's like you can sniff the faithfulness of God, the providence of God. He has set this up. And when you walk into that moment, you get the tingle of soul. You know that God is in control. And that's why David, with such bravado, is going to challenge The giant of Gath, who, according to the longer cubit, would have been twelve and a half feet tall. Well, but David's going to grow up before our eyes. This man is ready for the job. Father, I just ask that you would move in a mighty way to build this body, to do something supernatural in this body. We want whatever's in that ram's horn of oil to be on this church. And Lord, I pray that you would prove us on lions and on bears so that we are ready to do even the greater things that are before us. But may we have David's humble attitude to say yes, Father, to the difficult moments along the way. It's in the
0: precious name that we ask this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.